Hi, I'm Georgia Graham, and I'm a writer, editor, and pretty much retired model. This is Threads of Conversation, a show on the Standard London Sometimes Radio, where I talk to creative people about their life and career, as told via clothes. Today, my guest is Willie Deterra, better known by his handle, William Colt. Willie works in fashion as a writer, curator, and consultant, lending his unique eye to special projects for Gucci, alongside being a contributing editor for Fantastic Man. His singular vision is best evidenced by his Instagram account, where he posts a mix of art images, political questions and memes, encouraging conversation and critical thinking amongst his followers. Willie is someone who offers an incredibly thoughtful, nuanced and necessary perspective on culture, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. Willie, welcome to Threads of Conversation. Hi, thank you. Um, That was a beautiful intro. We can start with your first piece. So the first piece that you've chosen is one piece that reminds you of your childhood. So please, can you tell us what you've chosen for this and describe it for us? Um, It's a sweater by Online uh, Ceramics, which is a a T-shirt sweater brand kind of um, art uh, I don't know if I would call them a collective. It's a duo, and they're based in California. Uh, you can find them at Dover Street. And uh, I would describe it as uh, dark brown. It has an apple tree. The tree is playing guitar, and it says, um, sing me a song of my own. Um, so the, the, the artwork with the, the, the prints that they choose, it's... Often based on the Grateful Dead, but it's also based on childhood drawings. And I connect with the brand because I've always liked drawing. It's uh, one of those unknown facts about myself. I don't know if that's an interesting fact, but um, I've always liked sketching um, since I was a kid. And I think sketching got me into fashion design. And I'm a sort of okay designer i wouldn't say i'm brilliant and that's how i ended up in more the image making and communication so um can you tell me a bit about your childhood so my childhood was spent um partly well my parents are from rwanda which is in central africa they fled the war they met uh very young and were married in burundi the neighboring country, which is where I was born. I lived in Burundi until the age of nine or ten, and then went to boarding school in Switzerland, um, Mm -hmm. which was a bit of a shock, but at the same time, I guess it just taught me to be super independent how old were you when you went i was i was nine. Oh my goodness i was was super young (laughs) what kind of a child were you were you rebellious were you i imagine that sounds like quite a strict environment where there were lots of rules were you rule abiding um Um, what was your sort of personality as a kid personality was uh, was uh yeah quite rebellious um i knew what i wanted i had a you know I, I, i had a specific way even in the way of dressing uh Thank God we didn't have uniforms. So, you know, I explored different phases. I went through the punk phase, the the um, the heavy metal phase, the you know dreadlocks. Um, so, I mean, it was it was an exploration. But um, yeah, I guess uh, rebellious. But you know, I had a sense of rules as well. It wasn't like out of control. Mm. And who do you think had a formative influence on you, either sort of creatively or personality-wise, when you were younger? 
Oh, definitely my sister. Um, she introduced me to photography in the sense that she would buy fashion magazine, which sounds really cliche, but she would buy fashion magazines and then I would flip through them. Um, there's, there's almost a 10 year difference. So she was almost like a mother figure mm. for, for, for us growing up away. I, I saw my parents twice a year um, for summer breaks and for Christmas. And uh, she was kind of like a surrogate mom. Um, so her buying magazines introduced me to the images of Comme des Garçons, funnily enough, mm. those ads in the 90s, which generally didn't have clothing and had more kind of beautiful photography. And that's, uh, that was kind of a shock. I always explain, like, the day I was flipping through her, her a copy of her French Vogue and I saw an ad for Comme des Garçons and it looks so different from, you know, Chanel ads with very wealthy women and, mm. you know, gold earrings, etc., cetera, uh, power shoulders. And I just realized you could do so much with uh, fashion and images, you know, create this kind of amazing wow effect. Did you have a strong sense of your own style? I mean, you're impeccably dressed today. Um, Thank you. And you're very well known as a very stylish guy. Thank you. Um, did you, uh, I mean, you say you experiment a lot with your aesthetic, but were you very conscious of fashion? Were you very conscious of being decisive about what you wanted to wear and that sort of thing? Definitely, definitely. Um, to, to the horror of my parents, because they were quite conservative, and my sister as well, they were more like how would you call it, preppy. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, I was more into the different subcultures and identity forming through the, the, the choice of clothing. The fashion came a bit later, I think around 18 with Junior Gautier uh, when the line came out and, you know, I could finally save up and afford a bit of Gautier as, mm-hmm. uh, as a school, as a school guy. Uh, not a boy at that point, a sort of um, teenager. Um, so that's when I started going into fashion, but because I couldn't really afford it, it was more like thrift stores. So mm. I had a group of friends and we would spend Saturday, um, in Switzerland. I was in a small town called Lausanne, which is 30 minutes from Geneva. So it's on Lake Geneva. And, uh, we would go off to the Salvation Army and, mm. uh, you know, get looks and any evenings. But they're always the best. I feel like there's all those sort of wealthy Swiss women and they're giving away, oh, they can't fit this Chanel in exactly, their closet. Exactly. Oh, we'll give it to the Salvation it's Army. It's a form it's of so curation cool. as yeah. well. You just, you, you've got you've to be willing to dig. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to, you know, when you were a kid, say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I, I think pretty much by age 13, 14, I knew it was going to be fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and why fashion, not art? Because you say you're very into it and your practice definitely veers along that sort of wibbly line between yeah, fashion and yeah, art. Yeah. Uh, how did uh, you know it was fashion for you? I know, it, it became fashion because that was the only thing that I could explain to immigrant parents, um, war refugees, as, as a job that was the nearest to a proper job Mm -hmm. fashion was i think for me the one and maybe other kids of immigrants might understand this because you kind of you know you have to accountant doctor or business my family is very business they're all business and 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 corporate um so fashion was the closest to applied art maybe is that Mm -hmm. the term for uh, it seems like it's linked to industry where 
fine art would have just been like impossible. And already fashion, they just refused to even pay for my tuition. They mm. were like, "We're not paying for your tuition." So I was like, "I'll do it anyway." We'll see the rebellious that. So I went and worked in the restaurant and um, paid my first two years of tuition and uh, working with. Uh, I was scouted uh, as a model, so I worked for a few years and made uh, enough money to pay for the first two years and but by, by year three they were like okay well we see that you know you're very stubborn uh so we're gonna we're gonna pay your third year tuition mm. and was this in london that was in johannesburg but oh, okay. then they had moved to johannesburg south africa apartheid was over um and uh my parents decided to move there and start a business you know my dream was to go and study it in paris mm. and they sort of said well if you're going to do fashion you need to do it in english because you already speak french fluently mm. your whole high school and everything else has been spent you know with the french language you need to be bilingual to kind of at least how do you say chance. today i'm gonna dress like a punk in french so yeah so that's so that it became fit and then fit didn't happen so i ended up studying in johannesburg mm-hmm. i ended up doing fashion fashion a fashion course in johannesburg a ba in women's wear and mm-hmm. design um But I think it all came from the obsessive drawing because I used to draw for hours. And then instead of drawing landscapes, I just started drawing, learning to draw fashion figures from Gautier. And then it turned into just drawing my own uh, kind of fictitious collections. Mm -hmm. And I used to do them. I was was obsessive. I used to to have like my calendar. I had to have my collections designed before the collections were published. And then I would compare... What I was kind of thinking... Essentially testing yourself as a trend forecaster. That's, that's, that's it, that's it, that's um, it. And uh, yeah, so I, w- I, I probably still have that at my parents' house. I would design these full collections um, ahead of, you know, Fashion Week and then compare and then, you know, do my little seasons. Yeah, I used to do this thing where it was back in the days, it was almost, I think, pre-style.com. I remember we were to these tiny little grainy videos of Tim Blanks recounting the collections on yes. Vogue.com. You know, they were so small on the website. And then I would look through all of the collections and I would try and memorize all the pieces. And then I would get magazines and look at all of the editorials and try and test myself if I could identify where the piece. So I, so I sort of played this game, like, that's, that's Prada. And yeah. then I check the credits and be like, yes, yes. That's it. I still, I still do the same way. I, when I look at collections, I try not to look at the. Um, well, it's difficult now, but you know, to to try and judge a collection from just the looks as opposed to the brand. Because as soon as you you know which brand you're looking at, then it kind of mods. Obviously, some it's obvious, but it's sort of try and look at the collection without thinking about the brand itself. Because mm. it's become a lot more about brand communication these days. Mm. So we're getting into your second piece. So this second piece that you have chosen, um, this is a piece that reminds you of your career. I absolutely, I love this choice. I find it so sort of decadent. Um, please, can you tell us what, well, you've chosen a few things. Can you tell us what you have chosen for this yeah, category? So, uh, but just for context, we're looking at images. So I was I was very good. I did a whole PDF to answer your questions. Um, so the the the... The kind of contradiction in uh, the things that define my career or my, my, my sort of workwear are slippers. So I've been buying slippers since the pandemic. Um, 
We have to stress these are not M&S slippers. These They're are we've got an image in front of us. We've got some Margiela. Again, I'm testing myself. We've got Margiela. We've got the Gucci slippers. Pretty sure I can spy some buttery soft Loewe in there. No, that's a, that's a, that's Bottega. Oh, that's Bottega. Oh yeah. no, oh no. That's I've met my the, match. The, 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 that's <laughs> it. But that, that was close. Uh, so that's Bottega, and then we have Marnie, and we've got uh, sort of. Uh, crooked the sort of alligator leather from Balenciaga so uh, for context I, I work from home my living room is literally has been turned into my um, my uh, work studio which is filled with books in every corners and piles and piles of uh, books and magazines um, and uh, I, I, I never really have to go out mm-hmm. um, and that's why I choose uh, fancy slippers and not M&S to kind of feel like at least I'm making an effort, even even though nobody sees them on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, so taking it back, so we left you in Johannesburg studying fashion. Yes. Uh, now you're living in London and you're working as a writer, you're a consultant. Can you tell me a bit about that journey? After f- 15 years in Johannesburg, around, I think, 12 to 15 years with a break in between where I lived in Belgium and Paris um, um, did another course at CSM at Central St. Martins Um, I basically decided to come back to Europe um, which was in 2015 Um, at that stage in Johannesburg I started a brand called Cult 11 AD with um, a business partner and we thought we wanted to come and uh, kind of relaunch it from here in in um, in London or somewhere that's more of a bigger platform mm. so we wanted to give ourselves the time to kind of meet the industry here even though we'd, we'd started you know through that's the magic of Instagram I'd, I'd been talking to a lot of people at that stage you know I'd had my Instagram since 2011 this is um, a, so this morning uh, when I was finishing up my research for this I tried really hard to get to the end of your Instagram I scrolled for probably good 20 minutes I couldn't yeah, get to this so I, I couldn't so couldn't tell you when you started your Instagram so that's one of my questions <laughs> I, I started in 2011 I started in 2011 and and the funny thing is is I was very reluctant I just I hated the idea of Instagram mm. because of the way people were using it I didn't like that, what, I, what I used to call salads and selfies mm. you know is, is I, I just was like what is the point of people putting filters on um, coffee cups and salads and selfies well this is the question did you ever we've moved past the filters but were you, did you use rice I was personally I was into Amaro you know I have used one or two filters for a while can't remember which one um, at the beginning my first I think it must be about 10-12 posts which were about, uh, you know, my travels. So because of the, the brand that was started in Johannesburg, we would travel to uh, trade fairs um, in Vegas, in LA, and uh, so sort of like streetwear. At that point, I had moved... Yeah, so let's, let's, let's rewind. Let's give a, a, a more of a, a chronological order, like to answer your question. So... I graduated from fashion design, women's wear, mm-hmm. started working with uh, Couturier in, 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 in Johannesburg. So I was doing custom dresses, uh, 
evening dresses, prom dresses. Mm. Uh, so I learned kind of the technical aspect. Mm. Um, and I enjoy that a lot when it comes to fashion. I d- don't know if I enjoy making patterns, but I kind of enjoy the craft of, you know, working with seamstresses, beaders, etc. Then I moved into streetwear when, you know, fashion just became too fast in terms of pace and it stopped making sense and for me I wanted to speak to a wider audience than just super wealthy women Mm -hmm. that you know would order the dresses I was making so I just decided to switch into uh, just before streetwear became connected to high fashion so Mm -hmm. I kind of felt that one coming Mm -hmm. and uh, that's where I met my business partner and we kind of started this cult 11 AD which was based on uh, art printmaking and uh, but mostly done on uh, t-shirts and simple kind of cotton shape um, dresses Um, and from that we came to uh, to CSM to London so we both applied um, at CSM and it was very miraculous because I got into the MA for, um, it was called FCP at that point, but it's image making now, uh, which is any form of media that's basically based around, um, uh, you know, the communication of fashion or image making. And uh, he got into uh, postgraduate uh, design. So that's the that's how i ended up in london now backtrack to 2011 while we were starting the brand i decided to join instagram and first i thought let me do a travel blog and that wasn't really working and because i had been obsessively collecting images Willie was a travel influencer i know i, would love to I know see it. i know i know but it was not it was it was like you know standing under the Beverly Hills sign or doing really weird things in New York and, you know, stopping people on um, at New York Fashion Week and taking selfies. Mm. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. Now people uh, are stopping you at Fashion Week and taking selfies with you. <laughs> that's it. That's it. No, the, the, it's been reversed. But um, then I switched to, to doing something anonymous with the, with the Instagram. Um, so I completely went into hiding, which is good that people don't scroll that much. Mm-hmm. And I started um, sharing my research mm-hmm. to kind of like you do, like you, you mentioned, I would look at, you know, what was happening culturally and kind of find a sort of research which, you know, would be useful for people. So I kind of moved Tumblr to... Instagram, which then got me, you know, uh, fashion editors and stylists starting to follow my feed, and it just built from there. Mm. Um, I mean, that kind of re- leads us on to your next piece. So, this is the piece that you've chosen that reminds you of a high. Um, yes. I'll let you describe this piece, but uh, it moves very seamlessly from what you're talking about. That's it. And uh, I describe it on uh, on my PDF as uh, this huge customized Gucci tote, um, which can fit a small child. Um, it's a massive Gucci tote. Um, it's got the, the GG monogram. Um, it's got the green and red stripes and it has my initials. It has W on one side and an N for Datira on the other side. And it's a high because it was sent to me by Alessandro, Alessandro Michele, the designer. Um, and we collaborated on a series of images 
when the bag was launched and that was i think my second or third collaboration with gucci so mm. and you started consulting for them whilst you were still at csm yes how did that come about are you allowed if you signed a million ndas can you tell us a bit about yeah, I'm that allowed, i'm allowed <laughs> i'm allowed uh that started with the meme the meme campaign which mm -hmm. was a bit of a shock for a lot of people so i got a bit of flack from the meme world and from the fashion world because at that stage something which now you know meme and fashion is it's become quite common and it's being used um you know people have entire accounts like i deserve couture which you guys should mm. follow uh you know they use meme the meme format to you know to critique um the industry to talk about collections etc but at that point it was it was a big no-no mm -hmm. i mean that was in i think 2017 um i was still at csm i got the email and it's like oh well we like your account we've been following your account alessandro expects you to like make memes and work on a meme campaign for a, a watch that's being launched And I thought it was a joke. I literally thought it was a joke. Is uh, I, I had to. You're like, is this a meme in real life? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Am I being trolled? Am I being trolled? So um, I looked up the the sender on um, on um, what is it? What, what's that professional? Oh, LinkedIn. Link, that's it. <laughs> It's like that's gr it. Facebook for grown-ups. That's it. Facebook for grown-ups. Um, so I, I looked him up, and um, it was genuine. So I, uh, you know, I responded and I said, yeah, I'm super keen and that's amazing. Um, but I had made Gucci memes before that. So I think maybe that might have just uh, influenced them in reaching out. So I, I had been making fashion memes since, I don't know, like 2015, mm. maybe. Or before that. Because for me, it's just meme is, a, I, I always approach things like, you know, Instagram is a tool you can do whatever you want you don't need to be trapped in by how other people are using it and it's the same with memes Meme memes are a language you can adapt them to um other areas and that just seemed like something interesting to do so i was making fashion memes to the horror of my tutors at uh, csm <laughs> they were like william really you know you're making that's, the, that's so vulgar but it's funny because uh, that's something i find so and i'm you know, there's, you have almost 100,000 followers. These, mm. I imagine, a feeling shared by your other followers is that I really love the way you reflect the feeling of the zeitgeist, not just in the things that you post, but in the way you post them. So you'll have this beautiful or really rare reference image and then you'll have reposted someone with a question about something political and then some people's answers and then you'll post a hilarious meme. And somehow it sits side by side without feeling jarring because that is what being yeah. conscious in the modern world feels like exactly, these days. Yeah. Um, so on Instagram, it's more me looking at a tool and evolving it and evolving its format with each sort of embodiment that it takes, each shape that it takes, because Instagram has changed since, you know, 2011. We're not using uh, Rise anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what But you exactly, and, and you know, the non-filter was a shock when I didn't use filters. We used to have to put hashtag no filter just to let people know this exactly, is a totally unfiltered the, image. Exactly. The, the, the no, uh, no non-use of filters, which for me, I thought was ruining images. Like, why do you need to subpoena a very nice reference? It wasn't shot that way. Don't do that. What kind of posts do you find that people respond to most? 
First off, uh, I'm very blessed with um, a really intelligent group of people. Mm -hmm. So I learn as much from the people that send me DMs, their opinion. Uh, I think each Instagram, the tone that you create, creates your audience. Mm -hmm. So I'm very uh, happy and blessed to have very intelligent people, interesting people, um, you know, being attracted to the account. Um, and then it becomes a collaboration with them as well. The posts that do the best... I don't I'm, just mean in terms of performance or likes, but yeah, yeah, that you yeah. find people most engaged with or even incensed by, because that's another question is, yes. do you worry about offending people? Uh, do you, you know, do you feel that sense that a lot of us feel on social media where you want to be liked, you want to yeah. put portray yeah. a really positive image of yourself yeah i'm 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 careful not to hurt people but i don't need to be liked mm -hmm. I'm, I'm aware of the responsibility of having a hundred thousand people almost um you know but i'm, I'm i never worry how much like i don't qualify things through how many likes they get or the response from people if i think it is a, a necessary topic to look at or an image that's worth being featured or an artist worth it really doesn't matter what you know uh what 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 the engagement is with 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 the the work um self-censoring in order to create um kind of a bigger following i think i could have I know enough about the system to have doubled the amount of followers. So I probably... Go back to your travel blogging days. Post Sorry? a few more... Back to your <laughs> exactly, travel blogging exactly. days. I post a few more sunsets. Cats all days. <laughs> I can do cats all days. Um, I, I know what works. And I probably could have an account which has double the following. But I don't... Um, that's not the goal. For me, it's more who follows me as opposed to um, the, the number of people. Mm. Now, I want to move on to your next piece. So this is the piece that you have chosen that reminds you of a low. Yes. So please, can you tell me about the piece that you've chosen for this? It's a, it's a New York, uh, it's, it's, it's a cap. Uh, it has NY, so the New York Yankee logo. And instead, you have, uh, in a really clever way, the word uh, Alcoholic Anonymous weaved into it. Um, this one is about recovery. So... It's both a low and a high um, for me. Recovery is both, you know, a reminder of the years I spent in addiction and um, the struggles of addiction. And at the same time, it's also recovery as the base for anything I do moving forward. Um, so from and and you know from my mid twenties to mid thirties, I really struggled with a drinking and drug alcohol. I mean, sorry, a, a drug problem. Um, I've been in treatment three times, and it was third time lucky. Uh, and now I'm 13 years clean and sober, and I'm enjoying it. Well, congratulations! And that is an incredible <laughs> feat. Um, you wrote a really amazing and very raw piece about your addiction and your recovery for Indie Magazine. Yes. Um, how does it feel to share something like that, particularly when you operate in a world of images and sort of perceived perfection? Yeah. I mean, I, it's a funny thing how sometimes 
what seems like a no-go area can connect you with people on a deeper level and in a better way. So I've met more people in the industry who actually, because addiction doesn't choose your job, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't care that you're a fashion editor or not. So I've met people who have important role in the industry and who also are in recovery. So it's been a, it's been a great conversations to, you know, to have with them. But it's true that it's a very private thing for a lot of people. There's a lot of like shame attached to it, which for me, I think it's the same as the stigma of HIV AIDS uh, and other, um, I would say, diseases. Is it the correct word? Diseases. It's like, why do we need to attach shame to any sort of um, uh, disease? Because alcoholism, um, addiction is, 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 is a disease. It's sort of uh, um, something that I've had running in my family. And I often, when, when people come up and they're like, oh, I think I, think I might be an addict. I'm, like, I'm sort of like, well, look at your family history. Uh, maybe this is like a phase where you're partying too much. Because, you know, I started using drugs and alcohol with people who managed to stop and, mm. you know, grow out of it. Um, for me, it was a genetical thing. It ran in my family on both sides. So um, I've lost, you know, two two uncles and a cousin to um, alcoholism and drugs. Um, so it it for me, it's a it's a it's a no brainer. And but I don't need to attach any form of uh, like shame and stigma. Mm. It's you know you don't have shame and stigma because you got the flu. So mm. it's, a, it's a disease. I always think these things they it's like they thrive in these dark sort of warm That's places exactly. like bacteria yeah. and they multiply. Yep. Um, you've also written in your answer about this when you uh, sent it to me that you wear this to fashion parties sometimes to make sure that the waiters don't give you alcoholic drinks. Yes. How do you find this as a conversation starter, particularly people that don't know that you're in recovery? Or I mean, first thing. Um, and that's that's maybe for any fashion catering or party um, party organizer, PR people. It's like you need to think about people in recovery mm-hmm. when you do your bars because it's great for people who drink. And it's true that, you you know, the ideal for getting drunk because you're getting free vodka and it's sponsored by a vodka brand. So any chases or like any water... Um, you know, uh, sodas and that sort of thing, they look at you really weird. Like, you sure you don't want to drink. It's free. Or it's like, um, uh, it's harder. I always joke it's harder to get like sparkling water at a fashion party than to actually get a drink, a free drink. Um, so I do wear it because it has happened, uh, I think, three times already, uh, where. Because of the music, because of uh, because of the noise or the stress of the person behind the bar, they don't hear you correctly. And I drink Coke Zero, so they think it's whiskey and Coke, and mm. I ended up having to spit it out. Um, and yeah, so the, the the cap just serves as like, you know, if they pay attention to the cap, hopefully uh, it serves as like, well, here I am. I'm alcoholic that, that's why and it stops the conversation of oh why aren't you drinking mm. sometimes it's just like oh it's religious reason mm. no but I, I love it I feel like it's very on brand for you to style it out and with a sense of humor as well that's it that's it but yeah thank you so much for sharing that story with us yeah, thank you for um, asking so moving on to the next piece so yes. 
this is a piece that made you feel a part of something. Yes. So please, can you tell us what uh, you have chosen for this category? The, the, the piece that makes me feel part of something, um, I choose one of the many um, pieces I have from Telfar. So it's a black leather cap and a hoodie with the logo. Uh, it's an E with a T and it's... Um, one of the early logos that he had on his sleeve it should I mean I folded the sleeve but the sleeve has customer on it so it's the Tafa customer t-shirt which was one of the early pieces that he did so it's Tafa's work um, has been interesting I've always believed in the brand and I wanted to you know support Tafa Clements for those who don't know um, it's luxury without luxury I think he's his business partner or uh, art director Babak Ragboy um calls it luxury they're trying to create luxury without luxury so it's the sense of being part of a, a group of people or a brand without the high cost attached and it's built this kind of um global fan base or community so what happens, what why makes me feel part of a community is whenever I wear it, it starts conversations. You know, it was a, it was an old old woman on the bus and she was she saw my cap and she's like, oh, you know, I've been trying to get the bag and I like it in this color. And, you know, it's been a struggle to get it. Then it's uh, it was um, so I called them my Telfar conversations. And I think the best one was uh, last last February I was coming back to London from Paris after Fashion Week and um, the security guard I really I was so unexpected so I'm putting my luggage through you know the x-ray for, for luggage and one of the security guards came up to me and he's like oh my god do you know how long I've been trying to get the, the bag and this green etc after seeing my cap so mm. we had this long conversation about Telfar so it, it what I like is, is these unexpected conversations with everyday people and connecting over a brand where you wouldn't it's not your usual fashion industry conversation mm. and something I found interesting about this is that Telfar has built as you your anecdote shows a really genuine community around yes. it and yet particularly for me as someone i'm a writer and i use words the word community is so massively overused what do you feel makes telfar's version of community feel different feel authentic because there are some brands like telfar that they foster a really authentic community yeah um what do you think divides the two essentially I think I think Telfar, the genius of Telfar, if you go on um, his Instagram, not only the group of people that he works with are a community, and then he features the people that buy his products on his Instagram. So mm. nobody does that. Nobody puts the customer on their feed. So, you know, they are part of the brand communication itself. Anybody, you know with a Telfar bar can end up being on their, you know, uh, Instagram as the model of the week or, you know, showing off the, the, the item. So that's one of the genius part of the, 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 the communication for me that stands out. So for me, I buy every season pieces of Telfar because I want the company to make it. Mm. So it's, you feel invested in the success of um, of that business and that's what people that, that that's what a community is where everybody else is just air quotes community but they're not really building a connection or 
I don't think that the community want to see the business make it. They mm. don't care. Yeah, no, you're right. Because definitely sowing that emotional seed is so vital. I mean, even if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, you were talking about seeing those Comme de Garçon images and you're still passionate about the brand yeah. and you're still shopping yeah. at DSM. You exactly. Know, I didn't even know it was a brand back then. I didn't know. I didn't care. I just love the communication. I just love the way they used images. Yeah. I was sold onto in, in uh, to the brand by you know I was I was sold into the the brand without even had to to look at the the designs. Mm. The best kind of marketing. Exactly. Um, moving on to your next piece. So yes. this is a fun one. So this is one piece that reminds you of a great party. So Willie, what have you chosen for this? Uh, for this, I've chosen Rick Owens uh, Kiss Boots, or I don't know what actually what the product name is. It's the the Rick Owens platform, and they have a glass heel. Uh, they're easier to walk in and wear than they look. For a lot of people, when they look at the Rick Owens platforms for men, um, it seems like your foot is arched. But actually, because of the platform in the front, they're really amazing to walk in, which was uh, was great because I wore them um, in Paris uh, for Bat Magazine launch, which uh, is a queer magazine, gay and queer magazine, which was started by um, my dear friend Gert and Yop. Of fantastic man and that was I think the first issue came out 20 years ago ran for 10 years and now uh, it's been relaunched after I've been pestering uh, Gert and Yop to relaunch it for like four years mm. um, was it a magazine you read first time around yes mm. yes I remember the first copy was I was I was on a summer job in Paris um, and it was uh, Bernard Wilhelm the designer with the ironing board on the cover. Um, so I, I bought the books. I couldn't get the magazine as easily um, in South Africa, but they built a website as well where they would feature people. The website is still up where they would keep featuring people. It was a way for uh, a community to meet. They would uh, publish parties in different cities. Um, so again, community building mm. in a true sense because they really, you know, uh, wanted to change um, well I don't know that that was the intention but they did change our perception from um, a gay man's point of view or queer man's point of view what our density was mm. uh, where before that it was overtaken by a super commercial very um, non-inclusive uh, idea of of what a gay man looked like or, or was like. So they introduced, you know, the bear, the guy with with a hairy chest, the guy who's, uh, you know, they had black guys, they had uh, large guys, they had small guys, short guys. So it was all types of bodies. Um, was was the genius of of Bat Magazine. Um, so it's been relaunched, and yes, that's the shoes I wore for the for the relaunch uh, in Paris um, this uh, in Feb. So this kind of brings us onto your next piece. Um, so this is the piece that makes you feel sexy, and it's interesting because for this piece, I won't spoil the surprise, but you've chosen a fragrance. So yeah, so the the image what makes me feel sexy for me, I think. <laughs> most men would probably say it's fragrances is what they wear as 
I was fragrances, and I'm a bit of a fragrance freak. I mean, I sort of apparently they call them frag heads. That's frag people, heads. That's literally that's what they call people who are really into fragrance. Oh wow, I am a frag head. <laughs> I just realized there's a name for me. I, I go there's this amazing website called Fragrantica. And people just have like these long threads discussing every fragrance you can imagine. You just type in whatever you're wearing as a fragrance and you'll see the content. You'll see all the, you know, the comments by people, how long it lasts on your body, the projection as in how much people are going to smell it when you're wearing it, etc. So it's pretty, it's pretty detailed. It's quite amazing. Um, I've for a long time used uh, <laughs> cliche, le labo. Santal, but it's a successful one. Um, I always say, uh, it, 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 particularly women that wear that fragrance, I really like it, but they really intimidate me. I don't know why. Really? It's like, yeah, there's something. Oh, wow. I think it's because I've had, you know, a few authority figures in my Wearing life. It. And maybe it's the kind, it's often, I think, women that wear it, they tend to be quite put together. Yes. They're quite sleek. They're very yes. elegant. I always, my hair is always a bit too frizzy and my <laughs> face is always a bit pink and I always feel a bit sort of messy. Yeah. So there, and because I'm very tall as well, I just sort of, they're the kind of women that make me feel very galumping by comparison. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, yeah, it is, it is true that the, the, the women who tend to wear that are, um, it's true that they, they, they generally very well put together. Um, Guys, I mean, for me, the the I'd stopped for a while, switched to other things, um, and then uh, I smelled someone the other day um, on I think it was on a tube. Young guy, just you know, professional, probably graphic designer type style, and it just reminded me how good it was. So I needed to you know to get back into the labo. So the, you know, Santal has been like an on and off. Uh, I always go back to it. Um, and then, but in this image is currently it's Dior, uh, the oils and, um, the, the sort of those, uh, I don't know how they're called actually this collection. It's those larger bottles that are like one is tobacco color, I think. And the other one is Santal again, going back to Santal and you mix them, you make your own mix, which is interesting to me. It's like, you know, you can mix the different oils and smells and, you know, you create your own layering, um, which I find in that case um, can, you know, create something that people don't automatically guess what it is. Because with fashion, I mean, when you're walking, when you work with uh, stylists and editors, people just take one sniff and they can tell you what you're wearing. Mm. Um, so it's always interesting to, like, you know, throw throw people off uh, the, the scent. Quite um, literally. Yeah, so for me, sexiness, probably the closest you can come to with guys is the way you smell. Mm. It's definitely, it ties into that idea of rarity, because I think that's something we're really trying to capture in fashion is mm. rarity is still so synonymous with luxury. Yes. Whether that's a piece that, you know, a vintage piece that no one else has or a particular drop that um, there was a limited number or something. And I think having a signature scent, particularly one, as you say, you blend yourself and people not quite being able to figure out where it is, but then having that aroma left in the room, that is a very stylish and sensual way to yeah. sort of interact with others and people remember how you smelt as well i think isn't as i think i think 
meeting someone who smells amazing is always like such a such a memory you never remember the outfits but not that you remember how everybody smells but it's like if, but if somebody, they if smell somebody, good you if remember they smell good you, you remember it exactly anyway moving on to the, we're up to your final piece yes so this is and it kind of ties into that conversation about rarity so this is the one that got away so willie what is the final piece that you have chosen for us today so the one that got away um are any kind of uh Satchel by Louis Vuitton from the spring-summer 2002, which were designed by uh, Julie Verhoeven, the artist and uh, sometimes illustrator. And uh, I think I saw these again as that Comme des Garçons fashion magazine impression. I couldn't afford it at that time in 2002, but they left a huge impression. Um, And then I became obsessed with Julie's work. Um, and they made of patchwork and they called the fairy tale or fairy um, collection. So she designed, she she customized or, or, or designed uh, bags for Marc Jacobs for Louis Vuitton. So she's been collaborating with him over the decades. And these were the first bags and shoes that she made for him. Um, I wish... I would have been able to buy them. And now that I can afford them, I'm looking for them online. Mm. This is um, a piece that you've chosen from a collaboration. And obviously, there are so, you know, we're in the age of the collab. In your opinion, what makes a successful collaboration? I think, um, I think I actually had a conversation about that on my, uh, on, uh, on, on my stories on Instagram and it it was to think about collaboration the same way you have them in nature so you have the parasitic collaboration so it's when something becomes a parasite on a living organism so that's not good Mm -hmm. when one party is benefiting more than the other so you know when you're collaborating with artists or a magazine or if you're a big brand try not to be a parasite so try not to only gain something but give the person something back uh symbiotic is probably the the best one where both benefit um as such so i think for me in terms of collaboration is when the collaboration makes sense when it isn't um a marketing move um in the sense that you know each party wants to have an equal conversation and, and bring something to, you know, to the table. Willie, I think we're finished. Um, thank thank you, you so much for being on the show. It's been such a fun episode. And thank, thank you. you for taking us through your threads of conversation. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And thank you for anybody listening. Mm-hmm.